Section 51, A Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Rev. John Pringle. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. His reproof of the fault previously noticed was but a mild and gentle admonition, because the Corinthians sinned in ignorance so that it was proper that they should readily be forgiven. Paul, too, had praised them in the outset because they had faithfully kept his enactments. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now he begins to reprove them more sharply because they offended more grievously in some things and not through ignorance. 17. But in warning you as to this, I do not praise. For I translate it in this way because Paul appears to have made the participle and the verb change places. I am also not satisfied with the interpretation of Erasmus, who takes parangelein as meaning to command. The verb to warn would suit better, but as to this I do not contend. There is an antithesis between this clause and the beginning of this chapter. Quote, While I have praised you, do not think that it is unqualified commendation. For I have something to find fault with, as it is worthy of severe reproof. End quote. This, however, in my opinion, does not refer exclusively to the Lord's Supper, but also to other faults of which he makes mention. Let this, then, be taken as a general statement that the Corinthians are reproved because they came together, not for the better but for the worse. Particular effects of this evil will be brought forward afterwards. He finds fault with them then in the first place because they come not together for the better, and secondly, that they come together for the worse. The second, it is true, is the more serious, but even the first is not to be endured, for if we consider what is transacted in the church, there ought never to be a coming together without some fruit. There the doctrine of God is listened to, prayers are offered up, the sacraments are administered. The fruit of the word is when confidence in God and fear of him are increased in us, when progress is made in holiness of life, when we put off more and more the old man, Colossians 3, verse 9, when we advance in newness of life, etc., Romans 6, verse 4. The sacraments have a tendency to exercise us in piety and love. The prayers, too, ought to be of use for promoting all these purposes. In addition to this, the Lord works efficaciously by his Spirit, because he wills not that his ordinances should be in vain. Hence, if the sacred assemblies are of no benefit to us, and we are not made better by them, it is our ingratitude that is to blame, and therefore we deserve to be reproved. For the effect of our conduct is, 
that those things which from their own nature and from God's appointment ought to have been salutary become unprofitable. Then follows the second fault, that they come together for the worse. This is much more criminal, and yet it almost always follows the other. For if we derive no advantage from God's benefits, he employs this method of punishing our carelessness, that we are made worse by them. It usually happens, too, that negligence gives birth to many corruptions, especially on this account, that those who do not observe the natural use of things usually far ere long into hurtful inventions. Verse 18. When ye come together in the church, I hear there are divisions. Some take the words divisions and heresies as referring to that disorder, a toxion, of which he speaks soon afterwards. I consider them as having a more extensive signification, and certainly it is not likely that he would employ terms so improper and unsuitable for the purpose of exposing that abuse. For as to their alleging that he has expressed himself in more severe terms, with a view of exposing more fully the heinousness of the offence, I would readily grant this if the meaning corresponded. It is, then, a reproof of a general kind that they were not of one accord as becomes Christians, but every one was so much taken up with his own interests that he was not prepared to accommodate himself to others. Hence arose that abuse, as to which we shall see in a little, hence sprung ambition and pride, so that every one exalted himself and despised others. Hence sprung carelessness as to edification. Hence sprung profanation of the gifts of God. He says that he partly believes it, that they might not think that he charged them all with this heinous crime, and might accordingly complain that they were groundlessly accused. In the meantime, however, he intimates that this had been brought to him not by mere vague rumor, but by credible information, such as he could not altogether discredit. Verse 19. For there must be also heresies. He had previously spoken of divisions, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. Now he uses the term heresies with a view of amplifying the more, as we may infer too from the word also, for it is added for the sake of amplification. Pras uxesin. It is well known in what sense the ancients used those two terms, and what distinction they made between heretics and schismatics. Heresy they made to consist in disagreement as to doctrine, and schism, on the contrary, in alienation of affection, as when any one withdrew from the church from envy or from dislike of the pastors, or from ill nature. It is true that the church cannot but be torn asunder by false doctrine, and thus heresy is the root and origin of schism, and it is also true that envy or pride is the mother of almost all heresies, but at the same time it is of advantage to distinguish in this way between these two terms. But let us see in what sense Paul employs them. I have already expressed my disapprobation of those who explain heresy as meaning the setting up of a separate table, inasmuch as the rich did not partake of their supper along with the poor. For he had it in view to point out something more hateful. But without mentioning the opinions of others, I take schism and heresy here in the way of less and greater. Schisms, then, are either secret grudges, when we do not see that agreement which ought to subsist among the pious, when inclinations at variance with each other are at work, when every one is mightily pleased with his own way and finds fault with everything that is done by others. Heresies are when the evil proceeds to such a pitch that open hostility is discovered, and persons deliberately divide themselves into opposite parties. Hence, in order that believers might not feel discouraged on seeing the Corinthians torn with divisions, 
the apostle turns around to this occasion of offense in an opposite direction, intimating that the Lord does rather by such trials make proof of his people's constancy, a lovely consolation. Quote, so far, says he, should we be from being troubled or cast down when we do not see complete unity in the church, but on the contrary, some threatenings of separation from want of proper agreement, that even if sex should start up, we ought to remain firm and constant. For in this way, hypocrites are detected. In this way, on the other hand, the sincerity of believers is tried. For as this gives occasion for discovering the fickleness of those who were not rooted in the Lord's word, and the wickedness of those who had assumed the appearance of good men, so the good offers a more signal manifestation of their constancy and sincerity. End quote. But observe what Paul says, there must be. For he intimates by this expression that this state of matters does not happen by chance, but by the sure providence of God, because he has it in view to try his people, as gold in the furnace, and, if it is agreeable to the mind of God, it is consequently expedient. At the same time, however, we must not enter into thorny disputes, or rather into labyrinths as to a fatal necessity. We know that there never will be a time when there will not be many reprobates. We know that they are governed by the spirit of Satan, and are effectually drawn away to what is evil. We know that Satan, in his activity, leaves no stone unturned with the view of breaking up the unity of the church. From this, not from fate, comes that necessity of which Paul makes mention. We know also that the Lord, by his admirable wisdom, turns Satan's deadly machinations so as to promote the salvation of believers. Hence comes that design of which he speaks, that the good may shine forth more conspicuously. For we ought not to ascribe this advantage to heresies, which, being evil, can produce nothing but what is evil, but to God, who, by his infinite goodness, changes the nature of things so that those things are salutary to the elect, which Satan had contrived for their ruin. As to Chrysostom's contending that the particle that, ina, denotes not the cause but the event, it is of no great moment. For the cause is a secret counsel of God, by which things that are evil are overruled in such a manner as to have a good issue. We know, in fine, that the wicked are impelled by Satan in such a manner that they both act and are acted upon with the consent of their wills. Hence, they are without excuse. Verse 20. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He now reproves the abuse that had crept in among the Corinthians as to the Lord's Supper, in respect of their mixing up profane banquets with the sacred and spiritual feast, and that too with contempt of the poor. Paul says that in this way it is not the Lord's Supper that is partaken of, not that a single abuse altogether set aside the sacred institution of Christ and reduced it to nothing, but that they polluted the sacrament by observing it in a wrong way. For we are accustomed to say in common conversation that a thing is not done at all if it is not done aright. Now this was no trivial abuse, as we shall afterwards see. If you understand the words is not as meaning, is not allowable, the meaning will amount to the same thing, that the Corinthians were not in a state of preparation for partaking of the Lord's Supper, as being in so divided a state. What I stated a little ago, however, is more simple, that he condemns that profane admixture, which had nothing in it akin to the Lord's Supper. Verse 21. For every one of you taketh before others his own supper. It is truly wonderful, and next to a miracle, that Satan could have accomplished so much in so short a time. 
We are, however, admonished by this instance how much antiquity, without reason on its side, can effect, or, in other words, how much influence a long-continued custom has, while not sanctioned by a single declaration of the word of God. This, having become customary, was looked upon as lawful. Paul was then at hand to interfere. What then must have been the state of matters after the death of the apostles? With what liberty Satan must have sported himself? And here is the great strength of Papists. Quote, the thing is ancient. It was done long ago. Let it therefore have the weight of a revelation from heaven. End quote. It is uncertain, however, what was the origin of this abuse, or what was the occasion of its springing up so soon. Chrysostom is of opinion that it originated in the love feasts, apa, ton, agapon and that, while the rich had been accustomed to bring with them from their houses the means of feasting with the poor indiscriminately and in common, they afterwards began to exclude the poor and to guzzle over their delicacies by themselves. And certainly it appears from Tertullian that that custom was a very ancient one. Now they gave the name of agape to those common entertainments which they contrived among themselves as being tokens of fraternal affection and consisted of alms, nor have I any doubt that it took its rise from sacrificial rites commonly observed both by Jews and Gentiles. For I observe that Christians, for the most part, corrected the faults connected with those rites in such a manner as to retain at the same time some resemblance. Hence it is probable that, on observing that both Jews and Gentiles added a feast to their sacrifice, as an appendage to it, but that both of them sinned in respect of ambition, luxury, and intemperance, they instituted a kind of banquet which might accustom them rather to sobriety and frugality, and might, at the same time, be in accordance with the spiritual entertainment in respect of mutual fellowship. For in it, the poor were entertained at the expense of the rich, and the table was open to all. But, whether they had from the very first fallen into this profane abuse, or whether an institution otherwise not so objectionable had in this way degenerated in process of time, Paul would have them in no way mix up this spiritual banquet with common feasts. Quote, this indeed looks well, that the poor along with the rich partake in common of the provisions that have been brought, and that the rich share of their abundance along with the needy, but nothing ought to have such weight with us as to lead us to profane the holy sacrament. End quote. And one is hungry. This was one evil in the case, that while the rich indulged themselves sumptuously, they appeared in a manner to reproach the poor for their poverty. The inequality he describes hyperbolically when he says that some are drunken and others are hungry, for some had the means of stuffing themselves well, while others had slender fare. Thus the poor were exposed to the derision of the rich, or at least they were exposed to shame. It was therefore an unseemly spectacle, and not in accordance with the Lord's Supper. Verse 22. Have ye not houses? From this we see that the apostle was utterly dissatisfied with this custom of feasting, even though the abuse formerly mentioned had not existed. For though it seems allowable for the whole church to partake at one common table, yet this, on the other hand, is wrong, to convert a sacred assembly to purposes foreign to its nature. We know for what exercises a church should assemble, to hear doctrine, to pour forth prayers, and sing hymns to God, to observe the sacraments, to make confession of their faith, and to engage in pious observances and other exercises of piety. If anything else is done there, it is out of place. Every one has his own house appointed him for eating and drinking, 
and hence that is an unseemly thing in a sacred assembly. What shall I say to you? Having fitly stated the case, he now calls them to consider whether they are worthy to be praised, for they could not defend an abuse that was so manifest. He presses them still further by asking, quote, What else could I do? Will you say that you are unjustly reproved? End quote. Some manuscripts connect the words in this with the verb that follows in this way. Shall I praise you? In this I do not praise you. The other reading, however, is the more generally received among the Greeks, and it suits better. End of section 51.